0: I love the smell of bakery. Oh, look, Elaine, the black and white cookie. Mm. I love the black and white. Two races of flavor living side by side in harmony. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know, I often wonder what you'll be like when you're senile. 49? I'll have a cinnamon babka. And a black and white cookie for me. Peace. Hmm. See, the key to eating a black and white cookie, Elaine, is you want to get some black and some white in each bite. Nothing mixes better than vanilla and chocolate. And yet, still somehow, racial harmony eludes us. (laughs) If people would only look to the cookie, all our problems would be solved. Oh, your views on race relations are just fascinating. You really should do an op-ed piece for the Times. Hmm. Look to the cookie, Elaine. Look to the cookie. (laughs) Relations with a classic rock theme. I thought I'd throw a little Seinfeld in there for good measure. The name of them, by the way, I'm Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here for the garden. Uh, I've taken a few weeks off, and it's good to be back up here teaching. I don't know, for some reason, I had several dreams about today's sermon, and none of them were positive. One part of it was I fell asleep during my own message more than once. I'm not kidding, so it took like an hour and a half to get through. The other one was that I kept switching over to notes from another message and I was getting confused. And the third one was only like six of you were here at the end. (laughs) I'm going to try to make at least one of those not be true today. (laughs) That'd be a success. Um, Today we're continuing with our series on grace and religion is like oil and water. How grace and religion don't mix. And today we're looking at Genesis chapter 3. 15 through 29. It's actually a very long passage, but we're going to try to focus on the second half just a little bit. Today's message is called Come Together Over Me. Hence the song, and hence the video about the black and white cookie. Um, Let me just read to you some of the passage here, and I'm going to go through it. It's a long passage, but I'm going to put the second half on the screen. So if you'll just allow me, just kind of follow along with me in your head, unless you want to follow along in your own Bible. I'm in Galatians 3. 15 to 29. I'm going to start in verse 15. And here's what Paul does. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, once a covenant is made, it cannot be changed. You can't go back proactively and say, well, that's not what I meant. I'm changing the whole contract. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings as in many But it refers to one offspring, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham. It does not annul the covenant previously promised by God so as to make that promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. In other words, if all the blessings of Abraham are earned by religion, then it's not a promise It's a deal. It's a process. And he says, if inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? The law was added later because of sinfulness. Until the offspring should come, Jesus Christ, he explained that earlier, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels in the meantime. Now, an intermediary or an angel implies more than one, but there is only one God, and therefore, by the way, there's only one way to redemption. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. In other words, if there had been a law created that could save us from our sinfulness, then surely we could get the righteousness that Abraham was promised by religion. But the Scripture, through the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise would be by faith in Jesus Christ given to all those who believe. In other words, faith is what? It's a gift. Very good. Now, let's look at the slide here on this last part. Now, therefore, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized, just like we saw, for as many of you as that were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither rich nor poor, or slave and free. There is no male, there is no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So let's, as you guys know, the way I like to break down every passage, just so I can make it understandable for you, is we like to break it down into three sections, right? We have the historical application, which says, what about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? Then we have the theological application. What about God? What did he do? Why did he do it? And then the last application is the devotional. What about me? What should I do? Why should I do it? So let's first look at the historical aspect. First, I want you to notice that Paul drops some superior Old Testament knowledge bombs on these people's heads. I mean, he really does. Because remember, the Judaizers thought that their teaching was superior. They thought they had a very good case about why you need Jesus and Judaism to actually be connected to Heavenly Dad. But Paul launches into an amazing discourse that displays his superior understanding of the Old Testament and how it perfectly unites with the gospel of the New Testament. And he explains that that long before, long before ratifying his covenant with Moses, you know, Moses and the law and the Ten Commandments, there was this relationship that Heavenly Dad had with Abraham, who Jews consider the father of the Jewish people. The problem with Judaism is this. Abraham was counted as righteous by faith, the Scripture says, in many places, not by the law. And you know how we can have proof of that? The law did not exist. And the promise that God made to Abraham, I have chosen you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your seed. That promise was etched in stone and nothing could change it, not even the law that was to come. Abraham and his offspring, which by the way, offspring doesn't mean anything but Jesus, received it by faith alone. Therefore, we know this, because it was received by faith alone once, it is received by faith alone forever. The promise made to Abraham's offspring was not made to many, it was made to one, Jesus. And when we are in Jesus we are blessed as Abraham's offspring. That's what the phrase in the scripture means, we are in Christ. That means within Christ's work, within Christ's person, within Christ's presence, and so what happens is when God looks at us, he doesn't see our wickedness, he doesn't see our sinfulness, he doesn't see our rebellion, he doesn't see our imperfections, he doesn't see our addictions, he doesn't see how I drive on US 41. He sees Jesus, the offspring. I want you to see that the inheritance is by promise, not by Jewishness. That's in verse 17 through 22. See, the Galatian Judaizers, the ones who were teaching the Galatians who were Gentiles, listen, Jesus is great, but you got to have the law. The ones that were teaching that thought their argument about Abraham being justified by faith and works was convincing, but Paul proves that their understanding of Scripture is inferior Here's basically what Paul says to them. There is no way that sinners can be declared righteous in God's sight by doing religion. Because Abraham was justified before he even started his religion. Before he was even circumcised, Abraham was counted as righteous. He never lived under the Mosaic law. As a matter of fact, the law came 430 years later. Augustine. I love Augustine. He wrote a book called The City of God, and I I love, he's he's probably one of my favorite early church fathers. (laughs) He says if the law justifies, then Abraham was not justified since he lived long before the law. That's pretty simple, right? Now imagine, guys, here's what Paul does. He goes through this thing, he goes through this whole idea of how The gospel works and how grace and faith works and how it's superior to the law. He goes through all that and says, You have to understand something, Galatians. Here's what I told all the Jews. You people, you Galatians, you Gentiles who have trusted Christ, you are not inferior to Jewish Christians in any way, shape, or form. You have never stepped foot in the temple. You've never stepped foot in a synagogue. You've never stepped foot into a place where the Torah was being read. You've not been circumcised. You've not performed any offerings. You've not done anything that a good Jew was supposed to do. And here's how powerful faith is. You are on the exact same footing as their father, Abraham. Now, could you imagine how Galatians believers must have felt when Paul, who, by the way, was probably the number one expert on all things Jewish, He outlined that earlier in one of his books. He says, if anyone has reason to brag about their religious knowledge, it's me. And he goes through a list on his resume of all the reasons why he's an expert on all things Jewish. So here's the expert on all things Jewish. It'd be like this. It'd be like Michael Jordan coming to Nightlife Center on Wednesday night to watch us play ball when we do and coming in and say, Joe, and all of you other people, listen to me. Joe, your jump shot is perfect. What's so funny? (laughs) Joe, I've been around jump shots all my life. I know some people say LeBron is the greatest, but everybody knows I'm the greatest that ever lived. I can tell you I know jump shots better than anyone else. Yours is the best. Can you imagine how that would make me feel? I'd be jacking up shots the rest of the day, no more passing for me. I'd be fired up, wouldn't you? Michael Jordan says, I got a great jump shot. If it's not falling, it can't be my fault. The basket's moving. (laughs) Can you imagine how Galatian believers felt when Paul, an expert in all things Jewish, says, your connection to Heavenly Dad is not inferior in any way to any Jewish Christian. In fact, you are in the same exact position as the man they revere more than any other, Abraham. Abraham the very father of the Jewish race. Can you imagine, after the burdensome, divisive, false message of Judaizers, remember how the Judaizers were teaching? Listen, yes, you have Jesus, but now you have to be circumcised. Now you have to worship in the temple. You have to come once a year for the high feast days. you got to do all these sacrifices. you got to do all these things for the thing for Jesus to really work for you. Oh, and by the way, when you're around us, you're not allowed to eat with us because we're Jewish and you're Gentiles. Yes, we love you, but you can't eat with us. That was the burdensome, divisive, false message of Judaism at the time that they were teaching the Galatians. Remember how burdensome and divisive it was? Can you imagine what they're feeling now when Paul, the main expert in all things Jewish, says you're on the exact same plane as everyone else who is in Jesus Christ? At that point, the temple, Judaism, even the Roman government, all of that stuff became insignificant when compared to their connection to Heavenly Dad and with each other. And can you imagine how that unified that church? Can you believe what Paul just taught us? We're not lacking anything. All the promises of Abraham are just as much ours as they are Paul's, as they are Peter's. Can you believe that? That's amazing. It'd be like how I felt if Jordan told me I had the best jump shot ever. I mean, they were fired up about the message of hope and redemption and mercy because they knew it was not second to any other message. And they became obsessed with one unified purpose. That was expanding the kingdom. So that's the historical aspect. Let's look at the theological aspect. One God, one people, verse 23 to 29. I want you to understand how this works. The law, and we already talked this, the law was a divider. Not only did it put division between Jews and Gentiles, eating together, temple worship, circumcision, all that stuff. You know what else it did? It put division between God and all men, how? Because the law revealed our depravity. The law revealed our insignificance. The law revealed our insufficiencies. The law revealed just how sinful we are on a daily basis. And what the scripture teaches us is this. Heavenly dad can only have righteousness in his presence. And we could never achieve Righteousness. So the law is a divider of Jews and Gentiles, and it is also a divider between God and men. But you know what's great? Christ is a unifier. Through declared righteousness by faith, which is what? Tore down the walls of division. He unified Jews and Gentiles. All the promises and benefits and favor that Abraham had, all that stuff was given to everyone. And Gentile believers are on equal footing with God as the Jews were. Because remember what Paul said earlier in Galatians? What did he say? One of the very first things he says, it does not matter to me because God is no respecter of persons. He starts his message off by making sure the Christians in Galatia know God doesn't care about what race you are. He doesn't care about what socioeconomic level you are. He doesn't care about what country you live in. He doesn't care what political party you're a part of. He doesn't care what your hair looks like. He doesn't care if you're overweight or underweight or too skinny like most of you are, and it really makes me angry. But the point is, he doesn't care about that. He's no respecter of persons. So he unified Jews and Gentiles. You know what else he did? This is a miracle. He unified people of all nations. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Bruce talked about that earlier this morning during the baptism. The church today contains people from all over the world. And when believers come together, and if you have not experienced this yet, I hope you can. But when believers come together, it's miraculous the bond that takes place. If you've ever traveled abroad at all and run into Christian brothers in Christ. Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, other places, you know what I mean. There's something miraculous about how God, through Jesus, brings people from all nations together. But you know what else Jesus did as a unifier? He unified man with God. Where the law divided us from God, where it condemned us as unrighteous and sinful and hopeless and reckless, Christ's work and the gift of faith declare us righteous, they declare, it declares us forgiven, it declares us restored, and it connects us with Heavenly Dad. We're no longer fighting, striving, hoping to please Heavenly Dad. Maybe just get a drop of blessing if I'm good enough. That stuff is gone. Now we're connected to Dad, and not only are we blessed, all the blessings he gave to Abraham are ours. And we are unified. Jews and Gentiles alike, we are all equal to Abraham through a declaration of righteousness, not an achievement of righteousness. Good. You're learning, old people. So let's talk about what Paul says, Paul says about this. Do you understand that unity and purpose without the gospel is a lie? Some of you have seen this bumper sticker out there. And I understand the point of the bumper sticker is that you know we all have to get along to a certain degree. And I'm not denigrating that message at all. But you've seen this bumper sticker. I saw one the other day. It said, God is too big to fit in one place. So I got the bumper. You know, I, I remembered it and I went home and Googled it. And basically what that's saying is, God can work through all of these to bring people to himself. In reality, God is too big to be told how he will redeem people, right? God is too big to be told how he will deal with man's unrighteousness. I think God's being up to decide how he'll do it on his own. He doesn't need a bunch of men telling him, no, this is a better system. No, this is a better system. No, this is a better system. And the difference between all those other systems and the system of the gospel, all those other systems are based upon performance. And the gospel is based upon forgiveness. See, there's a corrupted Christian message like the one the Judaizers preach that say you can connect to God and be unified with God by some other means. Or you can combine one path and another. That isn't unifying. That's a dividing message. You know why it's a dividing message? Because it keeps us separated from Heavenly Dad. And if we're separated from Heavenly Dad, all of our unity that we might seem to have is surface unity. And it would take very little to disrupt it. See, to have unity, we must first be connected to the Father. That is the passion that Paul expressed. That's the whole reason for the book of Galatians. He wasn't mad. Listen, Paul wasn't mad that some Jewish Christians still wanted to participate in temple worship. That's not what got him upset. To each his own. Nothing wrong with it. What he was mad about is that people were adulterating the pure message of the gospel, trying to mix it with religion. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Not going to happen on my watch. So what's the devotional application for us today? Come together Right now, through the cross, I want to talk about the impact of unity at the cross. I want to talk to you now about what unity should be doing in your life. First of all, there should definitely be a personal impact. That's the transformation part of unity. It's not just just mercy that changes you, by the way, it's being around God's people that changes you. Some of you have experienced this magical power very recently in your life. How unity with brothers and sisters has this transformational effect and it takes you from the doldrums of what you were to what you could be. Because I can tell you, there's a lie out there that says, I don't need the church. I can worship God on my own. Wrong! Wrong! The whole point of the gospel is the church. Bringing people from all over the world, from all nations together as one. That's the personal impact. And then because of that, there's a universal impact of this unity. There's power and there's purpose. Look at the power of unity. Christians of all nationalities and all backgrounds living and working together in harmony. If you haven't experienced the power of what other believers can do in your life, I submit to you, you probably haven't met Jesus yet. Is that a bold statement? I don't care. I believe it. If you think you can know Jesus and not love your brothers or sisters, you're kidding yourself. You're lying. You're delusional. And you are not in unity. But the power of when believers come together, what they can do, it's amazing. It's what this power does that we're going to talk about in just a minute. But you know, there's a purpose to our unity as well. You know what the purpose is of this unity? God uses it to call out of darkness people who are dissatisfied and burned out. With a purposeless life that has brought them nothing but shame and nothing but heartache and nothing but burden and nothing but suffering. What the gospel does brings people together with a powerful message of redemption and hope and mercy and forgiveness. And God uses that along with the gospel to call you and you and you and me out of our darkness, out of our life of purposeless dissatisfaction. And He gives us grace. Mercy, unity, and power. Guys, listen to me. Unity should supersede any other division that might be among us. For example, my political opinions, I promise you, would deeply offend at least half of you at any given topic. And I can promise you some of my political opinions would make all of you angry. That's why politics has no place up here. I have strong opinions, but you know what? They are irrelevant when it comes to the gospel. Because my passion for politics, or the Seminoles, or anything else, you know what? It pales in comparison to my passion for redemption, forgiveness, and grace, And when I see it take place in one of your lives, it is the most amazing high you could ever imagine. When I see one of your hearts begin to turn and transform and start to taste what being declared righteous means, when I see your heart begin to show an understanding of mercy and grace, And faith, and then when I see your heart begin to love unity with the brothers and sisters in Christ that he has put in your life, when I see that begin to happen, it just thrills my heart. And the unity that we have in the church should be the most important thing. That's why it's so, so important to be here. Don't forsake the gathering together of yourselves. The scripture teaches us that. It's important. How can you have unity if you're never with God's people? Silly. The gospel declares you righteous, unites you with the family of God, and then it gives you a real purpose. Is he calling any of you out of your dissatisfied life this morning? Maybe you recognize through this message, maybe God has used this gospel in some way today. I don't know how. Maybe he's showing you that you have been living in spiritual isolation from God and his people long enough. I can tell you this right now. Your business won't give you purpose. Your major in college won't give you purpose. And for a while, you might think your children can give you purpose, but really, even that's fleeting. What gives you purpose is unity with heavenly dad and his people. The gospel can fill you with purpose and bless you with that unity. Come to the gospel. Come to the cross. Come to unity with his people and be filled with a purpose and be part of power so fulfilling you never even knew it was possible. I'm living proof of it because I'm depraved as much as anyone. But when I was in ninth grade, Heavenly Dad used the power of unity of the church to call me out of darkness into light to taste mercy and grace and forgiveness. And from that point on, I've been in love with the church. Oh, I've had some heartaches, some disappointments. I've caused plenty myself. But in the end, I'm obsessed with grace. I'm obsessed with the gospel. I'm obsessed with it in your lives. I love it seeing played out And I love it, love it, love it when we come together over Jesus.